of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to episode 34 of You Don't Have to Yell, an episode originally slated to cap off our month-long deep dive into the state of public education in America that was aptly blown to bits when all the schools were canceled in light of the current pandemic. So, this week, the data monkey, a man who normally comes to present the cold, hard numbers behind the issues, has come to join me in what may be a deep discussion of the current state of affairs, or maybe a collective freakout. Who knows? Listen on to learn more. It's good we're not doing an education episode. There is no education happening. Um, no. <laughs> in, theory, no there's... in theory, I guess I'm supposed to be homeschooling my child in some way, but we've yeah, decided, we decided to go for the uh, the feral, sort of naked and afraid, just, you know, go out there and learn in the wild. Uh, yeah, yeah. my kids are getting a really good education in Madden 2019. Um, well, you know, I mean, they tell me kids all sports is canceled. Then they'll be maybe they'll be esports. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Point. Yeah, it's uh, it. Uh, I mean, in all fairness, we've we've tried to keep a handle on things, and we've tried to keep some discipline going. And for the folks listening, I guess I should, if you haven't been listening to prior episodes, so uh, my house has four kids of my own, one foster kid. Um, they are all supposed to be homeschooled and um yeah it's it's just not happening now i've resorted to i mean my kids eating like twinkie cereal for god's sake there's no there's a twinkie cereal there is a twinkie cereal now if you needed another sign of the uh the peak and decline of uh, western civilization there is now a twinkie cereal i gotta say like just in time huh (laughs) snuck it in right before the right before the end yeah, you know, I was talking. I was talking with Sarah about this today, and uh, this is my wife, Sarah. Again, for those of you unacquainted with the name of my wife, and uh, I was saying how. Now, first off, we've become very, very disciplined at drinking a bottle of wine with every dinner. But we were talking about how the current pandemic amplifies whatever your current state is today. You know. Yeah. So, Right. Well, well, and you know what's interesting to me as a side note is that I've, as I've heard these sort of anecdotes of people actually trying to like structure school with their children, mm-hmm. like homeschooling, and my and all I can think is, oh, wow, that's that's fascinating how you are managing your anxiety by structuring the kids' day. Yeah, like, because most times it's like the kids going to school with like twenty other kids in the class. They're not getting that much one-on-one time, but you feel like suddenly. Parents have to be the teacher for the kid all day long and, and structure the kids and like structure a classroom and like, really? <laughs> yeah. On. I mean, look. This is more about your anxiety than anything else. Oh, 100% because everything is totally fucked up. Everything is fucked up. Like there's no denying it. And we're all just trying, we're all just trying to keep things as normal as possible. So when the water is finally bailed out of the boat, and we start floating again, or we realize what level we're floating at, you know, uh, we can kind of continue as normal as normal is, I guess. Right. Um, so big, big question for you. Obviously, your work is 100% in the market. 
Like, yeah. What's your level of anxiety right now? Actually, surprisingly low. And I think okay. that's just a function of, uh, you know, my age. I've been doing this now for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized in tallying this up, the world has ended like six different times I've been working in the markets. Right? But a different way. I've had like, yeah, oh, a different time. Every, 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 every time it's a different way, right? Yeah. We had, uh, there was long-term capital management was the first little appetizer I got mm-hmm. early on. And then we had the dot-com meltdown, which actually wasn't even, only really was partly, it was only in the tech stocks mostly. And then the real, the real trouble came a year or two later in like 02, 03, when we had a real credit cycle. Uh, yeah. And then you had a real big downdraft. Yeah. Uh, and then you've had, you know, the, the Federal Reserve slash plunge protection team came in and flooded uh, flooded the market with liquidity. It led to uh, the mortgage bubble, which led to a housing bubble, which led to structured credit bubble, which led to the, uh, the, the global financial crisis. And then the Fed went into overdrive again, and uh, we've had a sort of, you know, I mean, we've had obviously a recovery, um, and but there's been sort of constant questions about, you know, why the growth hasn't been better, so on and so forth. You and I touched on some of this in the past about incremental nominal GDP per dollar debt yeah. uh, has been coming down. So, and that, and now we have this, which is definitely different than the other crises I've seen. But it's just it's just funny to me that this is now like it's not the first time I've seen sort of a waterfall in the markets. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little different though, in that we didn't really create it, right? Yeah, no, I just, you know, I mean, this is the you sort of we we keep pushing things to their sort of uh optimal capital efficiency, which mm-hmm. usually tends to inflate exotic structures. Like in this case, we've had a, a large corporate debt structure that's built up over the last eight to 10 years uh, on the premise that, you know, all companies can't simultaneously really all go bankrupt. And then of course we find a way to make that happen mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> in theory. Uh, but this is, this is a fascinating experiment. I, I don't, un- I don't quite fully understand what we've done here um, because uh, you have, you know, I think what amounts to a public health crisis of some kind, though I don't mm-hmm. think anyone really knows the magnitude of it. And sort of to head off potential sort of what we call like fat tails, right, of the distribution, we've crashed the economy in like a heart-stopping way, mm-hmm. um, which I think is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know, I was thinking this as I was, you know, as I've been processing this and, you know, really like our markets and the economy and our behavior all kind of function on the idea that today is going to look kind of like tomorrow or, or, or should say the inverse that tomorrow is going to look like today, you know, and that there are certain things that are going to remain consistent Right. tomorrow that exists today. That's right. You know, so some basic stuff, gravity is going to exist tomorrow. You know, uh, the sun is going to rise tomorrow. You know, yeah. we know these things to be true. And so you can kind of plan uh, your behaviors and your activities on that. 
And when something comes super massive that just throws a wrench in that, right? Right. Then that sort of disrupts that. And ideally there should be, you know, there's there's a buffer there to manage that. So again, you know, kind of taking that whole idea. I anticipate that I'm going to have use of both my legs tomorrow, but maybe I'm walking down the stairs and I break one of my legs and, you know, now I'm on crutches or whatever, you know, and ideally there are, are kind of mechanisms to absorb that. You go to a Brazilian jiu-jitsu class and then the next thing you know, you're on your crutches Exa- butts. Yes. Yes. Much to the chagrin of my wife, which is a story that I'll have to maybe release a bonus episode for, but, uh, but no, it's but, an interesting point because that's yeah. what uh, I think the, the way um, that's a little bit the way that people approach the financial markets as well. There's sort of an underlying assumption that sort of nominal growth will just continue to be tomorrow what it was today or yesterday. Yeah. And so I, I think we've, we've never, and probably justifiably so, we've never ever factored a global pandemic into the series of variables that might throw that off. You know, yeah. I think er- I think every very multiple warnings about this potential, like for years, but you know, yeah, but yeah, exactly. But you know, you still see people smoking, and you know, it's like it, it, you you know, it's coming, but um, yeah, but but it, 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 I, 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 I found that really interesting, you know, that, um, that, that we've kind of had this global natural disaster that's effectively you know, stopped us dead in our tracks. Literally, like as a planet, we're kind of in uncharted waters, you know, we, we, we don't, um, we don't have a collective response for this, you know? Uh, no, we're sort of figuring it out. I mean, this is sort of a topic we can touch on if you want to. I just think fascinating how much sort yeah. of real time, you know, what we call AB testing is going on, right? Yeah. We're trying out like distance learning with students. We are trying out uh, working from home and remotely and skeleton crews in actual offices. And we're trying out uh, first release movies um, just to home, the home video immediately. And we're trying out like, this is a really interesting, like could some of these things could have long term repercussions um, about how we structure a lot of things in the economy. Right. Like, um, you know, whether we want to continue to keep supply chains as light, as we have, I mean, for, for decades now, we've had this ongoing idea of lean, lean manufacturing and just in time inventory. And there's a real question of whether some of that will have to be rethought, you know, yeah. because, um, well, maybe we need to have buffer stocks. Maybe you need to be thinking in terms of having some kind of disaster, um, recovery plans that involve having, um, you know, uh, inventory on hand. Um, you know, it'll be having people rethinking whether supply chains can be relied on when they're global, uh, mm-hmm. It has people, you know, I think I, I, I find it fascinating, this whole working from home, you know, I think companies going to wake up and be like, wait a minute, why do we, for a lot of these people, why do we pay for real estate that they work on when they can pay for the real estate they work on? Not to mention, if you're running a business and you're, you know, one of the pressures on business is the ability to hire Yeah, and you can just expand your your hiring pool to anyone with a reliable internet connection, a comprehension of the English language, like why wouldn't you just go that way? Right. There's so much about like just commuting to an office that feels very uh, outdated in some ways. Yeah. Not I mean, to yeah, mention- you've been kind of doing that for a while, like working from working from home. But Yeah. Uh-oh. But I guarantee you any 
I, I guarantee you any company that forces its people to come into the office that doesn't let people work from home who can work from home, I guarantee you whatever camaraderie they thought they were going to gain from that is automatically negated from the fact that you're forcing somebody to hop into a car just to sit with, you know, just to sit in an office. Right. And fighting you know? traffic into the cities or wherever they have to go. And yeah, exactly. So far. Exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's interesting to see how, you know, I don't know, I'd be curious to see what this all looks like on the other side. At this point, I'm kind of like, all I'm thinking about is like, you know, in the run up to World War II, you know, if you were living in Europe, you kind of knew things were changing and things weren't getting better. And I'm pretty sure around like 1937, 1938, you know, there were the people who were like, oh, just give it a year. It'll all get back to normal. Right. Right. And and in my mind, like I, I realize how bad this thing could get. And so I just want to be happy for every day. There is a working refrigerator with food in it and everybody's healthy and we've got a little money in the bank to patch us through should we need it, you know? But let me get to the most important question. How much toilet paper do you have on hand? <sighs> you know, we didn't even stock up and we have plenty. Well, I, I've been fascinated by this. My, my joke on this was like, you know, if anyone ever needed proof that, you know, human society is like a complex adaptive system with bizarre emergent properties that all complex adaptive systems show, mm -hmm. that's an example of it. Why is that the thing that we decided everybody started stockpiling? It's bizarre. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you're stockpiling, I have to ask the question, how many shits do you think you're going to take? And, yeah. And if you think you're taking that many, we have to talk about your diet. My God, it, what is going on here? It's you, not how many people are in your household times maybe one to one and a half a day? Like I, I don't I don't understand the math. Uh yeah. Yeah, it's it's not even it's and it's not a stomach virus. No, I know. Yeah. So yeah. I, I I'm at a loss. I'm not sure I I'm not sure I understand. And it's not like, but people aren't like, you know, and, and I've heard the argument, people say, oh, you know, well, well, I mean, you know, you're not often at your house as at that often, you know, you're, you're out of the house, you're not using your bathroom as much so you might run out until you need to have extra. I'm like, well, that's true of like trash bags too, but nobody's like freaking out and stockpiling trash bags. Yeah. Like well, I, there's a lot of things that, yeah, sure. You buy a couple extra to get you through because you're home more than you would be normally, but like. What do we, why are we, why are we stocking out of paper goods? Everywhere? Yeah. Well, it, when this thing broke out, when it was just starting to break out, I remember I was, I was, you know, I was running into, uh, I was running into a, to a store and I saw these two women walking down the, the street with kind of like what looked like a real heavy, awkward, you know, box. And so I originally I thought, oh, you know what, I'll go and help them. It seems a little heavy. And then I looked and as I got closer, I realized they were carrying like this coffin sized box full of milk, like basically <laughs> all the milk they could carry. And I was like, you know what, you can carry your own fucking milk. And I just walked off and, and, and did my own thing. And you want um, to ask like, how much milk are you going to drink? That's going to go bad before you could drink it all. Well, exactly. That's what I, what I understand. <laughs> what I want to know is like there's there's a finite amount of like refrigerator and freezer space. Yeah. 
in the city. And so at what point do we maximize that? Like, is there, is there a certain, like, I think we're going to find out. Oh yeah. I, no, I, I think that's right. I think, well, I, I my, my belief is that what's going to happen is uh, you're going to see everybody is going to wake up in a couple of weeks and realize that they have way too much of certain things now in their house and they don't need to buy it for like a year. Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, we're all set on canned soup until 2021. Like, yeah. All good. We'll, ha- we'll have a recession just for the fact that like people don't need to buy food anymore, basically. No, it is funny though. Everybody has their priorities, right? Though. Cause uh, you know, I love data. So I was looking yeah. at some, um, some data on, uh, it was like a survey data on, you know, month over month increases in certain purchasing. And it was very interesting to see, like you had a sort of 30 to 50% increase across these surveys of sort of shelf stable, and frozen food uh and then you had a 50 to 70 percent increase in paper good purchases month over month and alcohol purchases were up 120 percent month over month yeah so we have our priorities firmly in place well that was my my favorite is when the state of emergency was or or whatever it was when the current lockdown was announced they they announced uh liquor stores as essential businesses which the packies I, are open dan the, the packies are open dude which i completely agree with to be frank you know oh yeah um, absolutely yeah yeah now they shut down the marijuana dispensaries which are probably going to cause some problems later on but um but that's uh that that's to be seen that's to be seen um so i got i got a question for you too yes this is this is a big question being in the markets is this is the third anticipated stock market decline that we've seen, right? Yep. And the first two we knew were coming. Both times, we both you and I probably like a good year or so ahead of the crash talked about what crash was coming and you know the fact it was coming and what that was going to look like, right? And I said to myself, the next crash, I am just going to like get ready to short the market. And then when the time comes, I'm just going to short the shit out of the market because you can never say what's going to go up, but you definitely know that things are going to go down eventually, right? Like bubbles are almost easier to predict than than which stock is going to rise effectively. That's right. And so I'm kind of having a bit of like a bit of regret that I didn't spend more time learning how to short the market because now of course I'm here and it's it's the moment's already passed but like why don't more people do that that seems a more reli- a more reliable investment strategy seems to be wait for people to get overly optimistic hold on to your cash and then get ready to short things once everything falls apart that's uh, an interesting question I mean Oh boy, it's hard. Um, because I think the timing of that can be difficult, uh, to know exactly when it's coming. Um, mm. yeah, I mean, I, that is the, the short answer. I mean, there are some, some, some ways you could try to approach that. And certainly in my job, there are ways I do approach that. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, I think it's just, it's sometimes very difficult because I think oftentimes when you'd think, the market is uh, at its peak, it will often sometimes do exactly the opposite of what you think for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Usually almost to the point, like when you're in a bubble, as a, as a smart friend of mine once said, he's like, the problem, the reason why is um, why it's difficult is because when you spot a bubble, Dan, you probably mm-hmm. actually want to get in because you're actually a, you're a pretty smart observant guy. 
And so if you, once you've sort of spotted it, it's actually probably still not at the end phase of it yet. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I mean, so, so, so it's counterintuitive to say that, but oftentimes it's like when you think there's a bubble, you actually probably want to ride it for a while. Uh, yeah, no, I can see that. I can see that. I remember when Bitcoin was at 250 and I thought it was too expensive. Exactly. And then it, came, then it went up to 20K. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and it eventually crashed, right? So somebody's right yeah. eventually. But, uh, but, you know, it's, you know, like anything, you don't want to be aware of it and you want to fall in love, don't want to fall in love with it. But, um, but that's a whole side conversation we'll have to have at some point about that. But there's, because there are lots of ways, there are things you can look at, like sentiment measures and either liquidity measures or all kinds of things you can try to track to see what the internals of the market are looking like. Yeah. This one kind of came up a little bit out of the blue. Um, yeah. Because this is just such a strange um, simultaneous shutdown of economic activity broadly. Well, and that's kind of like what I'm trying to figure out right now is so, you know, governments are kind of responding in real time, you know, and, and, and the, the U S government's no different. And, you know, what I thought went well during the last financial crisis is there was just a very decisive measure to, prop up the financial system by any means necessary. And so we had TARP, which everybody hated, but it kind of released the sort of shock and awe that was necessary to, uh, you know, necessary to remedy the problem. Right. Right. Um, and then kind of on the opposite pole of that, let's say we have kind of Herbert Hoover, you know, pre depression kind of dithered on, on the level the federal government was going to support the markets and just gradually saw the whole platform disintegrate from under everybody. Where do you feel we are right now? Or is it kind of too early to tell? Uh, That's a, yeah, that's a good, um, that's a good question. I mean, the, I actually, my personal view, I think is that we are, uh, we all have PTSD from 2008, 2009, Uh uh, which is part of the reason why the sell-off has been so fast and so rapid. Um, yeah, it's because all these, even like whether it's either human traders or or quantitative traders or algorithmic trading, that's programmed to react to certain types of scenarios with certain types of uh, so it sees certain behaviors in the market reemerging and it will then sort of feedback on them. Um, and so there's a chase to sort of uh, you know whether it's like they start to buy the things that are considered defensive and high quality, and then they short the things that have leverage, and it's like all the playbook comes out, and so it sort of exacerbates it, and it happens all real time. Yeah. And so, and similarly, I think our policy response is happening in an incredibly quick um, way. I mean, it, it what took weeks and months to get together. In 2008, 2009, we are cranking out in like two weeks. I True. Mean, I mean, it, you know, we went from, you know, it took the Fed all the way to to sort of the second quarter of 09 to really get into full quantitative easing. And like, we're there already. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, and similarly, by sounds like by this week, we're going to have a uh, some kind of stimulus package that adds up to about 10% of total GDP. So, I mean... That's not that's not joking around. I mean, you go back and look at what the um, 
you know, what the stimulus bill was in um, the American Recovery Act, you know, was uh, 800 billion, 850 Mm -hmm. billion. So, um, you know, that was on, uh, it's about 6%, Mm -hmm. not even 6% of GDP. Um, So this is, we're, we are bringing out the big guns real quick. I mean, that's not. And in a lot of ways too, like it's not, in a lot of ways, the money is more justified in this specific case because. Depending on how they end up allocating it, but yeah. Well, true, true. But, you know, in 2008, it was pretty much revealed that a certain segment, a very sizable segment of GDP or a very sizable segment of people's wealth was just horseshit. You know, like if you own five houses on the outskirts of Nevada that nobody lived in, right? They, yeah, you know, yeah, they yeah. were they were on the outskirts of. I should say, if you own five houses on the outskirts of Las Vegas and nobody lived in, it was worth about what you'd expect. Um, this is a little different, I think, because you had a real economy that was really stopped by a very real, uh, a very real disaster. Um, you know, my favorite, my favorite strategy or my favorite country's reaction so far has been Denmark. Yeah, go which, ahead. Which is paying, they are giving people 80% of their trailing six month salary just to stay home. Huh. They're just like, yeah, they're just like, just stay home. We'll pay you for three months. Just stay home. Don't go anywhere and just hunker down until this all blows over, which is really like the only sensible thing as far as I can see, you know? Huh. Right? I wonder what the total cost of that program ends up being. Oh, probably a shitload. It's probably a shitload. It's probably a lot of money, but you know the flip side of it is, is you try and start it too early, everybody gets sick again, and then everybody totally loses faith in anything you're going to do after that. You know, right? I mean, that's kind of like the the and the the other thing too. I'd say is like, you know, the one advantage we have that Denmark doesn't have is right now, from what I can see, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the U.S. dollar is the only financial vehicle that has actually held any value over the last couple of weeks, right? Yes. Um, it's That's a fascinating thing. Currency markets are something everybody always struggles to understand a bit, which is that currency markets are, you know, the the race with the bear, right? Yeah. I don't, I don't have to be the fastest. I just need to be faster than you. Right? Yeah. So uh, everything's relative. So the, we're, you know, the Fed's expanding its balance sheet, but so is everyone else going to have to do that too. So it's all kind of a relative game. Um, that's why, you know, that's why I see, I think you see the impact on things like gold. Uh, Which tanked. Well, yeah. Or it didn't uh, tank, but nah, it didn't go up, mm, right? Well, I'd say it ran up and then sold off, but now it's kind of rallied back. So it's okay. sort of... You know, and we'll see what the end result is there. I don't know. Um, but it is, but what I say, I mean, one thing is gold is like sort of the ultimate currency cross, right? It's the yeah. one that you don't really have control over and that they can't really print. Uh, it's so, yeah, we'll see. I don't know, but you know, the dollar is an interesting question. I don't know, like whether or not it's going to retain this level of strength or it's just that it's because there's been a shortage of um, dollars kind of globally. And, you know, you and I talked about, I think in the past, how much. Um, you know, all, like a lot of global trade is done in dollars. Uh, there's tons of dollar-denominated debt outside the U.S. that needs dollars in order to service it. 
yeah. so there's always so there's always demand for the currency and so as things are uh slowing down there's less currency available and so it becomes a bit um there's i i don't know if it's a, a long-term appreciation or a short-term appreciation in a sense like once the crisis passed and you have the fed continuing to expand its balance sheet does that mean that the dollar actually comes down yeah but couldn't we just like expand it now like the market's hot let's just give the people what they want and spend on this ridiculously lavish package to keep everybody at home and bail out all the industries we're gonna do it man 10 years of 85 basis points so it costs less than one percent to borrow money right uh and in fact the smartest thing i've heard them do talking about is floating you know 50 year and 100 year that sure somebody's willing to buy it why not do you think somebody will i think they could probably do a 50-year issue and get it get it uh purchased sure i know i'm missing something here but but what am i missing no i don't i mean i don't i think that's exactly why they're looking at that's what how i mean that's how they're gonna have to fund the um fund it i mean now the question is like how much do you have to expand the fed's balance sheet in order to make that clear the market well we'll see like They've already, you know, the Fed's now. We we started, you know, quantitative tightening, right? If you uh, if you remember this, like to try to bring the balance sheet back down again, um, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, uh, we abruptly stopped that last September, mm-hmm. and then we've now reversed all of the tightening we've done, and in like two weeks, we're back to like all time highs. Uh, so they're they're going to have to. And the Fed has become sort of a bit the buyer of last resort in almost everything. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I mean, that's we'll uh, we'll see. Um, but that that is the short term answer for sure. The long term repercussions are t- still to be determined. But if, as I say, if someone's willing to buy fifty year debt at one percent, then and they're going to buy it, then I guess we'll issue it. Yeah. I mean, no way. For me personally, I'm out, but I don't think they're waiting for me either. Just straight up all Bitcoin? Yeah, that's me all the way. Bitcoin actually lost its value. Yeah, that's interesting. Do do you know more about Bitcoin than I do? What do you you think is the story there? Well, so the big, for me, the big question around Bitcoin was, is it a store of value or is it, you know, just a speculative investment, right? Is it just something people dump their money in because they want to see what it's going to do? Right. And if you look at what happened, uh, you know, over the course of um, over the course of the past year, you know, um, it was at a high of twenty thousand. Twelve months ago, it was down around four k. Right. Right. Um, climbed all the way back up to around 10K and then gradually made a slow decline, uh, you know, back somewhere, you know, kind of went in between seven and 10, basically, is where it went. Um, then came the pandemic and it just fell off a cliff and went down to, you know, sub 5,000. So pretty much like, you know, close to its all time low and now it's kind of creeping back up. And so, you know, uh, you know, my feeling is like, like, I think the question's been answered, you know, it's not a useful, it's not a useful means of exchange. Um, It's been disproven as a store of value. 
um, because of how steeply it declined um, at the, uh, you know, how steeply it declined at the, at the, you know, the recent, uh, the recent dip in the market. Yeah. And so it's, 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 I mean, it's back to what it was useful for before, which was buying like, you know, fake passports and MDMA off the internet. Like that's legit. Like if you, there, there are places you can look up the, the, the amount of Bitcoin transactions that are taking place. Yep. Right. And if you look, they're steady. Hmm. They've been, they've been steady since the boom. So there is the same amount of exchange of Bitcoin going on. Um, you know, even pre boom to now. So in terms of like real like Bitcoin being exchanged for goods and services, right? That's that hasn't grown. And that to me is you know, that to me is evidence of its value. Hmm. You know, and everything else is just bullshit. So basically like take whatever the value was when that process when when the number of transactions reached its or reached the level it's at now. And that's probably what the quote unquote real value is. And the rest is just purely speculative. Interesting. Yeah. yeah I just was one. I wondered what was going on there. Cause I actually wondered if what was happening in, I mean, it's partly, you know, the dollar appreciating so quickly again, there's like a dollar shortage. Right. So, yeah. so that's, that's sort of the inverse of what's happened. Like Bitcoin is by definition, the price of Bitcoin is quoted in dollars. Yeah. So if the dollar is going up, that currency cross it has to be appreciating versus that currency. So you've yeah. got. But I I wonder if it's a bit of a short term phenomenon, and it also could have something to do with people who are who own, you know, investors who own Bitcoin could be could have you know margin calls or other needs for dollars elsewhere um, due mm-hmm. to other investments they have and be selling the Bitcoin to to look, to get liquidity to in order to. Well. Yeah, that's true. And me writing off Bitcoin is sort of like writing off gold too, because the same thing happened to gold, you know, at the same exact time. That's right. People started selling it off for cash. Um, I I think the interesting thing though is, you know, if there's one thing that's been revealed in this whole crisis, it's that there's, there's no such thing as like an isolated disaster anymore. You know, if we take the the accepted theory of of kind of how this all how the coronavirus entered into the human population, you've got the wet markets in Wuhan. We now know that a that the regulation of a food market in a province in China that nobody knew about until this, or very few people knew about until this until the pandemic occurred, right? Yep. That the way they govern their food market ultimately impacts the health of everybody on the planet and yep. the global economy. Physical and financial. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. It speaks to the fact that you can't you can't just say that uh, you know the whole idea of like uh, these these nation states sort of governing their own affairs has kind of fallen apart to an, to an extent. You know. Right. Right. Um, and. Uh, and 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 the idea that we that you know the idea that we can all operate as independent actors and hope for the market to take care of itself is just you know fundamentally false you know you know the way i've been looking at this is is it world war 1 or world war 2 you know is it a disaster that is going to get us all to come to our senses and restructure 
the global order to prevent it from happening again? Or is it a disaster that we're all going to stop and pause at and then kind of do these half-hearted measures to fix, but is ultimately going to result in just another bigger, more horrible disaster happening? And I don't know what the answer to B, that is. B, I B. think B. Yeah, yeah I, 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 think, I think if human history is any indication, B is probably the way it's going to go. But It's just too you, many people invested in the status quo. This is why we continue to sort of just keep doubling, tripling, quadrupling down, right? Yeah. I mean, like everything, right? Like if anything, right? You look at the in the in the financial crisis, we deemed all these like major banks like to be too big to fail, right? Which yeah. is which is insane to me. Like once you've sort of said something is like is like almost a a public utility, you mm-hmm. can't just have then privatize profits with like regulated. In a, it would, without ending up regulating it, right? If, you, if you're saying it's there's in there's implicitly or explicitly, uh, you know, socialized insurance to to prevent the failure, then you have to also, you know, effectively regulate them, right? Like mm-hmm. that. And so now, too big to fail is going wider, right? We're deeming like, I mean, we'll see where we end up with, but we're basically trying to say like, you know, airlines, which by the way, is an industry that's been in and out of bankruptcy for the my entire career. Um, yeah. Every single one of these companies has gone bankrupt at one time or another or come close. And yet, you know, we're still flying places. It's not like we're all going back to horses and buggies because the airline industry should, you know, goes bankrupt. Um, but, you know, they, we have a, uh, or hotels, or you name it. I mean, like pick every everything, right? <laughs> it becomes the everything's too big to fail in a sense, right? Um, and and I I don't know. I mean, I on the one hand, I say yeah, okay, this is sort of a uh, exogenous event that none of these companies individually can control, and so therefore they didn't really have any. It's not by their own fault that this has happened, but at the same time, well, um, you know, do we really want to? set a precedent that if some, every time something happens, we just sort of step in to preserve the existing structures. I don't like, you know, I, I don't know that that's long-term productivity enhancing. I mean, maybe some creative destruction is actually necessary um, in order to, to rethink things. Yeah. But I think we, I think we probably ask this question every time and it's just like, when is it worth blowing everything up for? I mean, when you think about it, like prior to the Civil War, right, 50% of American GDP was pretty much dependent on slave labor. Right. Who's going to blow that up? Uh, I think everybody knew, or a lot of people knew it was immoral. A lot of people had problems with it. But how do you, you know, ultimately 50% of GDP wins, you know? Yeah, and but um, that's but this is a good example because fifty percent of employment right now is small businesses in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Right, so yeah. those aren't. I mean, I guess we'll figure out if what we're going to do, and we'll see what this stimulus bill does. But I don't know about you, but I'm getting emails left and right from every small business I use that are in desperate straits. Generally, most of them right now, yeah. um, and so you know they don't they don't get to send a lobbyist down to Washington to sort of get a zero interest loan with no recourse and no covenants and no anything, which is really not a loan. If you don't have, if there's no interest, no recourse and no covenants, it's really not a loan. Uh, And so, you know, what do you, what do you, I mean, what are they, what does that, what does that do? If you're going to just have a bunch of these small businesses or small restaurants or all these things, like some of them just won't make it. 
Like, yeah. Oh, because but they didn't they didn't get a do over, but like United Airlines does. I mean, there's certainly there's a there's going to be a certain element of like picking who wins and who loses. Ah, uh, yep. Go ahead, and, keep going. And, and, well, yeah, and I, but uh, you know, and so I think that there's there's you know ultimately like you know the government exists to to keep people from being victims of circumstance effectively. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you just so happen, I mean, it, it goes all the way back to, you know, it goes all the way back to the fact that if you were somebody who might be easier to murder than somebody else, right? There was a law in place to keep you from getting murdered. It was as simple as that, you know, mm-hmm. kept us from having to be stronger and more deadly than other people. So it kept us from killing each other, you know, and, uh, and it's kind of obviously gotten a little more complex since then but the you know basic idea is like if this thing is a public utility if the greater good is served by keeping this thing afloat than letting it die then let's keep it afloat and um and i i I do think you know you can't deny the fact that there is an economic benefit to having a system where you know i can be in chicago in two hours you -hmm. know and that can't exist without some level of government support. And I think the only thing we're fooling ourselves on is the idea that that can exist without a level of government support. It's something unique to the United States because, you know, every other country has a state-funded airline or most right. other countries have yeah, that, no, right? but yeah, yeah, you're arguing for nationalizing them. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, like, look, every co- – like, like we – in this country, we tend to have this idea that if it's not turning a profit, it's not good, Right. And the problem is, is you tell me, like, how much of a profit does your police force generate? You know, how much, how much of a profit does a fire department generate? How much of a profit does the U.S. military generate? They well, don't. so that's, you're coming to the heart of it. You said, what is the government there to do, right? The government, yeah. in my mind, the government's there to do two things, right? To operate natural monopolies. That's mm-hmm. like the, the police force. So we're not all like hiring our own protective forces, right? Yes. Um, and to minimize externalities, right? You know, externalities are costs borne by people who are sort of outside of a transaction, right? So if I sell you a, if I sell you a widget and you buy a widget and you're, um, you, know, you, you needed a widget and I made a profit selling the widget, but in that process, I, you know, making widgets, I poisoned a third person who had mm-hmm. got no, got no utility from buying the widget and made no profit from selling the widget. Um, that is like, that's an externality, right? So these sort of extra costs that are borne by people who are not part of the transaction. And that's, that's to me, like, if I think of two things that the government is supposed to do, that's what the things that the government should do. And everything else is somewhat extraneous. So yeah. what that does is reframes the argument around something like airlines is to your point, we can have the debate, but the debate is, are they a natural monopoly or, or not? Right. Yeah. Is it something like we don't have, we don't have competing private road systems where you're not allowed to run on, you're not allowed to drive on this road, you know, where, you know, you have to pay me for this road and they're owned privately. And like, we don't do that. Right. We just have sort of one road system and it's, and it's, supported by you know public fund, tax funds that's just like that's the question right so it's like to define which things should actually be operated in a natural monopolistic fashion and which ones shouldn't yeah and we have to get over this idea that it has to like it it has to turn a profit because if there's one thing that's drives me up a wall 
It's when some dipshit who hasn't balanced his own checkbook in 10 years is like, the government should function like a business. And it's like, it's no. No, it should function like a not-for-profit. Exactly. (laughs) That's Um, exactly it. Because you wouldn't exist if it did. You know, but that, but the, I think the greater point to that too is again, if we're, you know, you're talking about the whole idea of minimizing externalities. Well, what if one of those externalities exists in a food market in Wuhan? Exactly. Right? Or the definition of an externality. Or, yeah. Or, Or second point, what if one of those externalities is the fact that a country with a weaker healthcare system can create a, situation where a disease just flourishes and then it's distributed to the rest of the world. Yep. You know, then, then we've got a big question as to, is this, is this local response in the sense of, is this like sort of nationalized response sufficient or like we have this UN that theoretically is designed to keep people or keep nations from fighting each other. Does there need to be a stronger international system for regulating and, and fighting these things? Right. You know, because yes. this isn't the last one. No, in fact, we, people have been talking about this forever, that these markets are going to be the cause. I mean, it's already been the cause of multiple, um, you know, strains of virus that have come out of these. So, I mean, they, they clearly have to do something about it. They need to regulate them more carefully. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised we haven't heard more about, like, maybe we'll maybe we'll have to get out of the teeth of the crisis first. But I suspect at some point you're going to have to hear more about, you know, an international pressure on China generally to, to try yeah. to do something about this because this is just an ongoing, you know, liability that's just out there all the time. Um, or do some of- serious marketing, like a wet market food fair where I can taste like the best thing that comes out of that place. <laughs> Cause maybe it's really delicious. Maybe we uh, don't know what we're missing. I don't know, man. I've seen these things. I don't know. I don't know if you want to eat anything. coming out of, some of these I don't places. know. You're talking to a guy who bought shrimp on a beach in Brazil. Well, that was probably just came right out of the water, right? No. Oh, no, it definitely did. No, (laughs) there was a dude walking down the beach. This guy would walk down the beach every day with his shrimp skewers. He had this little, I don't know what it was. It was like a barbecue he carried in front of him. And I love shrimp. So I was like, so one day I bought three of them and I'm sitting there eating it. And, you know, I've got the shrimp shells just falling on my stomach and I'm thinking to myself, I'm the only person out of my entire family that speaks the language. So if I'm holed up in our apartment with Barfing. food poisoning, <laughs> like they can't do anything. Like, you know, they, like like nobody can go anywhere. So, um, yeah, but I, I made it okay. So I, I, I would I would venture I, I would venture to say I'd probably I would eat the fried stuff probably, you know, just because that stuff's uh, that right. stuff's safe enough. So there was one. There was one thing I wanted to. Um, well, I was going to make one final point. Maybe oh, please! Jog, maybe this will jog your memory. Just coming back to the airlines again, because I think yeah. the point is that I feel like the debate tends to be, to me, that the debate should be which things are natural monopolies and which things aren't. And the things that are, you nationalize, and the things that aren't should be um, privately owned and, and operated for profit. Yeah. The, the issue is with some of these things, they just become we're kind of half pregnant. Right, it's private in the up market and public in the down market, and that's where I think this, that starts to be a questionable um, exercise, uh, where you know they can continue to sort of, you know, make profits, pay them out in dividends, buy back 
bonuses, whatever. Um, in the case of, you know, airlines that helps, you know, equipment leasing companies and the unions that operate there, as well as the executives and all the other parties, the stakeholders involved in that. But then when it's, when this happens, you know, they turn around and say, well, we need a, I need a zero interest loan from the government and a loan, not equity, right? They want a zero interest loan and they don't want their equity diluted. Maybe to kind of paraphrase what you're saying, if you were going to be there, there, there shouldn't be a difference between being the executive for an airline and being the executive for NPR, for example. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Or the option. So they're going out to the government and asking for a zero interest loan. And everyone says, that's not a bailout. It's a loan. Like turn on Fox news. They're going to say like, it's a bailout. It's not a, it's a, it's not a bailout. It's a loan. And, and then you turn on CNN or MSNBC or something. And they're going to be like, that's not slush fund money going to these things. What yeah. you should really be asking is why don't they do an equity offering? Why don't they sell stock the market? I mean, they could, and now was that good for the existing shareholders? No, it's terrible. It would cut the earnings per share. The earnings per share or the earnings power would get, the collapse, right? If they earned $12 last year, let's say I'm picking United, they earned $12 yeah. a share last year and the stock's at 33, right? They go and issue a ton of stock to recapitalize the business. Uh, it's going to take that $12 number they earned last year and make it like two yeah, or, or one, right? The stock's going to end up going down a lot. And then whoever owned it at that point maybe is better off, but like, but the you know, you're not asking the shareholder, you're not asking the government to come in and give them a zero interest loan to basically just make the, the shareholders whole in some way. Yeah. Or allow the executives to keep their jobs or like, you know, I mean, this is all sort of, again, it's about preservation of the status quo um, as opposed to, you know, and why they need the government to do it. I, I don't know. No, I mean, I think the counter argument would be that just, you know, the markets are seizing up. And so therefore, could you, could you get a deal done? And it, it would, not at the price you like, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, if, you're, uh, if you're one of these airlines, you'd be selling stock at a very low price. So if, it's probably easier to go to the government and say, uh, you know, help us out a little bit here. Yeah. Yeah. So there's one last group of people I wanted to talk about. The real unspoken victims of the current pandemic and those are all the people who make their living working in Russian troll farms. Oh, this um, is, yeah, this was interesting because I don't have any data on this stuff. You, you intrigued me though. I was curious to hear what you had to say. Yeah, well, so you think about it. These guys go to work every day and their goal is to like say semi-racist shit and get people to fight on social media basically. And, and you know, the goal is basically to get a bunch of bored Americans to start hurling insults at each other. And now we're also consumed with an actual real crisis. It's very, very difficult to get us arguing, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, and so these poor guys, like, you know, you think about all these people who are kind of a little aimless right now. They're, they either haven't been working or they're trying to adjust to work from home. And, you know, they're in trouble. But these, these folks out there are just throwing these bombs out into the internet and nothing's taken. And so... I actually went on Twitter today and one of the hashtags that was trending on Twitter was reopen America, which seems to be 
it's it's actually disappeared now since so it's so it was there today it's it's not there anymore um but it was reopen america and uh and it was this whole idea that you know we should stop this lockdown and get back to work and everything like that and and the best part about it it, it was so transparent that people actually started calling out the troll farm oh <laughs> like in real time <laughs> it, it was hysterical and it was re- it, and, and there has to be nothing more demoralizing to these people than to be in this environment where you can't possibly stir any more discord than already exists because there's a virus totally stealing your thunder but on top of it you have people actually like recognizing what you're doing in real time like before you can <laughs> even get people to argue about it right 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 I hope people and, are wising up to that. I assume people are still falling for uh, the you know rumors and other things that they will throw out there, hashtags that they get trending. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so it's uh, it's it's a uh, it's it's been a uh, it's it it was interesting to watch. At any rate, you know, I'm looking at it right now. Um, I actually read a book recently that you might you might enjoy. Loser Think by uh, Scott Adams. You know, he's the Dilbert guy. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And he's refashioned himself as a bit of a political commentator. I'm not sure. To mixed results, I, I think, in my, in my view, he seems to be yeah. a, a, a very – he was a early Trump forecaster and then has become sort of a Trump apologist in some way. But, um, but, I, but there are some really fun things in there. And I think there are some, there's some fun ideas about, you know, that you'd love – most people to try to remember, you know what I mean? Like, and two that I thought you'd like is one, don't judge a group of people by the worst 5%, mm-hmm. which I think is a great uh, rule because people just love to work themselves into a, a lather over some random right or left thing that sounds extreme. And they, oh, yeah. and they, and, and they extrapolate. It's like, this is what, you know, Republicans want. Like, this, is, this is what they want for America. Are you like, no, it's just some batshit crazy idiot who put that out there. And like, let's not, you know, every group's got its few insane people. Like let's not yeah. try to assume that's what the agenda is for everybody who's in the, uh, who's, who's, you know, affiliates uh, with that. And the other one I thought that I liked was, um, and this is, it was the, how the slippery slope argument is the dumbest one there is and i when i read it i I went through his explanation i was like you know he's really right he's onto something like say when people just say you know well you know it's a slippery slope (laughs) you say and uh the one that cracked me up was he says uh you know what do you say it's like mowing your lawn is not a slippery slope to shaving your dog um you don't everything has countervailing forces at work you don't just yes. take something and assume it extrapolate it and go to the worth thing and therefore i cannot budge on this one thing because it will lead to this extreme and you're like no things <laughs> don't ever lead to like they rarely ever lead to the extremes because they're you know we just land on what we all decide is the right place to be and um so anyway i, I thought i thought you might like that especially in the context of some of the things we've talked about like the the gun debate or uh, some of the other other topics we've touched on. Yeah. Well, I think that's right. And I think it's times like now where we can't get mired down in, you know, we can't get mired down in, you know, buzzword politics 
in the sense of you know bailouts for the one percent or expanding the welfare state or whatever you want to call it you know right, right i think honestly the only good stimulus package that could possibly be reached is one that every constituency is going to hate Okay, so you may have noticed there are going to be some formatting changes to YDHTY as the country deals with this pandemic. And I'm going to be tapping the usual assortment of historians and other subject matter experts to paint a vision for how we get through this crisis and what we should be doing to make sure something like this never happens again. And my plan for next month was to talk about taxes, which is a little less timely now that tax day has been moved to July. But my next guest is going to bridge the gap. With Congress passing a stimulus package in the trillions, that's with a tra-tra-tra sound, the question of our growing debt and how we're going to pay for it comes front and center. Molly Micklemore, professor of history at Washington and Lee University, joins me to discuss how tax policy before, during, and after World War II might show us the way forward. Little teaser... If you've ever wondered what Donald Duck does for a living, you're not going to want to miss this. Per usual, theme music by Kvelertak, YDHTY, is produced in quarantine by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Stay well, folks. This is Dan Sally, signing off.